This is Speaking of Writers. I'm Steve Richards. It's only 20 miles from the mainline suburb of Philadelphia to the area known as Kensington, but it may as well be a world away. The main line is one of Philadelphia's most tony sections, famous for mansions and tennis courts and Princess Grace Kelly. Kensington is a decaying, poverty-stricken, drug-drenched blight, a place some can't escape, yet others escape too as they sink into a world of drugs and despair. In the book, Mainlining Philly, Survival, Hope, and resisting drug addiction, Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter tells her disturbing but inspirational story of growing up as the child of drug addicts. Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter is a clinical psychologist who works with individuals struggling with drug addiction and severe mental illness. She is the child of parents who suffered from drug addiction. She has also witnessed counts, countless addicts who lived and died in her parents' widely dysfunctional and often criminal inner circle during her childhood in one of Philadelphia's roughest areas. Happy to have Dr. Jerry Lynn Otter join me now here on Speaking of Writers. Welcome to this program. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So first off, why did you decide to write this book and what was your childhood like? Um, so I'll start with, with the first question. So initially when I set out to, to write the book, I was just going to kind of, I wanted to write all my own thoughts down and everything that I kind of had, had went through and keep it for myself, um, you know, j just as something to have for me. Um, and then as I started to write on it and work on it, I really thought that my story could be used as a way to instill hope um, and to help other people who were both struggling with addiction and mental illness or for the family members of, you know, of people who are struggling from addiction. So like a mother who has, you know, a child who's struggling with addiction or a husband or wife. So I thought that my story um, could be used for good, even though it, it, it was a, you know, tough upbringing and, and I went through some pretty, you know, crazy things. But I think that my story and my experiences could actually educate and help other people. What were your parents like? My parents, um, you know, when you read the book and, and kind of like it's so funny when it, when I when I was kind of listening to you read, you know, read the back of the book, you would think that they were these like terrible monsters, um, though, when they were using they had monster like qualities, they're actually pretty, uh, pretty good souls. Um, so my parents, when they were clean were very good people. They were very empathetic people. Um, they did a good job, I think, because I was an only child for 15 years. So it was just, you know, my parents and I, they did a really good job of doing what I think all parents, you know, could do is instilling confidence in me as a kid. So there was never anything that they thought that I kind of couldn't do. Um, if I ever doubted myself, my father was, his voice was always, you know, in my head. He would always reassure me that, you know, if I had a test coming up or something was going on, he'd say, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to kid. Like I complete, you know, I completely believe in you. And to have somebody have that level of belief in someone really helps to build your self-concept and, and your self-esteem. So they were good with that. They were good with giving me education about their struggles. So there was no um, skeletons in the closet. There were no secrets. My parents were very forthcoming and open about their struggles with addiction, and they used their own struggles to educate me on what not to do. So that's what life was like when they were clean. 
when they struggled and when they were using, you know, it was kind of an all, all bets are off type of thing, you know, as a child or as anybody who is very close with somebody who struggles with addiction, you take a back seat to that addiction. So what comes first is feeding that addiction, drinking, using. And I kind of felt like um, me, you know, as their child, I was kind of, you know, pushed back in the background and I experienced whatever collateral damage came out of their, of their active drug use. And what happened to your parents? So um, my father, um, you know, just to give you a very kind of brief synopsis, my dad um, struggled with, you know, heroin abuse in the 60s and 70s. Um, the way that he described it is he went from the frying pan into the fire. So he went from heroin to methamphetamine for most of the 80s. Um, well, the, the, the first part of the 80s, went away to jail, did some time. That kind of straightened him out. And he was clean from drugs from about ni- from 1985 through the rest of his life. What ended up getting my dad is something that takes down a lot of people that's readily available in, ev- in every you know corner of society. You do it when you're happy, you do it when you're sad, and, and it's alcohol. So my dad went from being clean for many years off of drugs, but eventually bought a bar, which was a great move, um, in, in, you know, at the epicenter of the opioid epidemic in the Kensington section of Philadelphia and started to drink. So what ended up getting him in the end was he became a very bad alcoholic. He drank a lot, uh, battled back and forth with periods of sobriety and drinking and ended up sadly getting uh, pancreatic cancer at 60 and you know he passed away by the time he was he was he was 61 um so that's kind of my dad's story my mom um a little bit of the opposite wasn't doing a lot of drugs and alcohol in her younger years started binge drinking in her late 20s um just because there was a lot of underlying mental health issues so there was a lot of trauma there was a lot of anxiety there was undiagnosed depression so my mom started to drink to self-medicate when she and my father separated when I was around 13, that's when she upped the ante. So it went from using alcohol and benzodiazepines like Valium and Xanax to actually abusing pain medication, opioid pain medication. To it, by the time she was in her mid-40s, she became an intravenous heroin abuser. And today, she's still around. My mom's birthday is actually Monday. She'll be 68 Monday. Uh, she's been clean off of uh, fentanyl and heroin for two years. Um, and she does still struggle with mental health issues. And she is kind of still struggling off and on with, with, with drinking. But she's much better today than she was two years ago, for sure. How much did you help your mom? Well, I, I, of, all, of all the times I've been interviewed, I never got that question. <laughs> And it's something that, that I think about almost every single day. Um, you know, looking at it, you know, retrospectively and even looking at it currently, um, the roles were changed when I was very young as far as, you know, me having a mom, I felt like I was my mom's mom. So the, the roles were reversed. So as far as help, um, that's been a part of the dynamic of our relationship since I was a young child. I always felt very protective of my mom. I always felt like I could never really let my mom know how I was feeling, how her use impacted me. Um, anytime she got herself in trouble for the longest time, I would enable her. I would bail her out of any type of legal trouble she was in. Um, you know, anything. I was always there. And I was just having this conversation with, you know, with a colleague of mine to where I still work on that. Um, you know, I have to kind of, 
start to form clearer boundaries because my mom is still in active addiction to a degree and it's hard. I want to jump in. I want to save her. I want to, you know, try to do it all. And it can't be my burden to carry. My mom has to want it and she has to take, you know, the steps towards her sobriety. If she's going to have long-term outcomes, it's not dependent upon what I want for her. She has to want it. And that's a really hard pill to swallow as a daughter of somebody who's an addict, but also as a clinician, because I know all the right things that I could do to help her, but it's worthless if she doesn't want it herself. So that's really hard. And I still work on processing that on a regular basis. And let's talk about you. How did you not end up like your parents? You know, I think it. Um, I think it's a couple of things. The, the, the logical or intellectualized answer to that, um, or what I've kind of come up with after kind of analyzing my own trajectory in my own life, is that that early education that my parents gave me when they were clean and sober, and those conversations that I continued to have with my father throughout my life, um, I think is what helped me. He described addiction to me as a young child. I mean, these conversations started as young as six. I have a six-year-old daughter now, and I, and I talk to her and my son, who's nine, the same way that my parents and my father specifically spoke to me. And he explained to me, he's like, Jerry Lynn, your brain is different than other people's brains and other kids' brains that you'll hang out with. Um, and he, he started the conversation off at six by saying, you have a monster that lives inside your brain. And the monster won't hurt you, and the monster won't do anything to you unless you drink or you use a drug like me or mom. Because what you'll do is you'll wake that monster up. And then once you wake that monster up, all that monster is going to want to do is drink and do drugs. And you see what that's done to our family. You see what's happened with, you know, me having to go away to jail and us not being able to pay our bills or getting evicted from places. You see what happens when you wake that monster up. And as I got older, that conversation and the nomenclature and the verbiage that he used obviously became more sophisticated. But I think that's what helped me because when I was approached at 12 and 13 and my group of friends said, hey, you want to smoke some weed or you want to drink? I very kind of confidently but nicely shot it down and I said no. And I, I thank my, my dad for that and my parents for that because if I had tried, you know, to be cool or to fit in, again, the confidence piece that they gave me to and believing in me, if I had tried, I would probably end up like my parents did. So that's kind of the logic. The other thing is, too, I think that I'm not a super religious person, but I do think that someone somewhere some spiritual being has kind of looked out for me because, you know, based upon everything that's happened, I really shouldn't be where I am today. So I do kind of thank my parents, believe it or not, as well as maybe some some spiritual force or guardian angel that has my back, maybe. And finally, what would you like readers to take away from this book, Mainlining Philly? Yeah, so... The main thing is, yes, it, it, the first part of its memoir and a lot of the stories, they'll pull you in and, and, and they're all very true based upon things that I experienced. But I put myself out there and my story um, as a way to educate people on addiction and on mental illness. The, the two main things that I want people to know is, number one, we, we have to do a better job of being less judgmental and stigmatizing people who suffer with addiction 
as well as mental illness, whether it's depression or severe anxiety or bipolar. And the reason why is because it's preventing us as a society from truly being able to help people, but also making people who are in active addiction kind of feel comfortable enough to get help. I've seen it so many times as both a clinician and, and as a child of somebody who struggles with addiction, the way that they're often treated and looked down upon. And addiction, we do have, you know, the science that, that says that addiction is a neurobiological chronic relapsing brain disease. What's interesting about addiction compared to diabetes is that with addiction, the symptoms are terrible. The active symptoms of addiction are lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, putting your loved ones, putting yourself through hell, putting yourself in these really high-risk situations, enough to where the people in the outside world look at you like, this person's a total scumbag, or they're not good people, or how can they do this to themselves and their loved ones? What you're actually looking at are the symptoms of addiction. You're not looking at someone's true character and who they are at their core. So I think the book kind of does a good job of explaining that we have to kind of change as a society the way that we kind of perceive addiction and the other thing that I want people to take away from the book is hope you know I've been in this business for for quite some time I have multiple family members that have suffered with addiction and severe mental illness and there are times where you want to throw your hands up you want to throw the tail in you want to give up and my my message is to not give up for people out there who are in currently struggling with addiction, if you've relapsed during COVID-19, if things are really hard for you, love yourself enough and know that you're worth it enough to get back up on the horse and try again. Don't keep on using, don't throw it all away. Get back up on the horse and try again. For family members like myself, of people who are struggling with addiction, take care of yourself. Know that it's not your fault. You can't take the blame for someone's relapse just as much as you can't take the credit for their recovery. So they're kind of the main things that I'd want people to walk away with. But the overarching theme is definitely hope. Great points. Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter, the book is Mainlining Philly, Survival, Hope and Resisting Drug Addiction. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And this is Speaking of Writers.